You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Evan Banks. And I'm Deanna Lee. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's September 9th. It's back to school season, and as teachers and students return to the classroom for the third time during the pandemic era, it's a good time to discuss how America's educators are doing. A national RAND survey conducted in January showed that teachers and principals across the country are hurting. Here's a rundown of the findings. Educators were two or three times more likely than workers in other professions to say that politicized topics, namely COVID-19 safety measures and teaching about race, racism, or bias, were sources of stress in their jobs. Overall, educators were twice as likely as other workers to experience frequent job-related stress. Educators reported higher rates of depression and burnout, and much lower rates of resilience. And one-third of those we surveyed were so disillusioned that they were considering leaving the profession. The results also suggest that something fundamental has changed in how schools and families relate to each other. The pandemic put physical barriers between them. Teachers became just one more face on a screen. Despite all this, more than 70% of the teachers ran surveyed and more than 80% of the principals still said that they were glad they had chosen to go into education. But it is clear that they need more support. For example, school districts could alleviate educators' stress by expanding tutoring programs, investing in summer school, and hiring additional staff. School and district leaders may also need to consider how they can re-engage with parents and families, re-establish trust, and channel political conflict into more productive conversations about what students need. Students may be back in the classroom in person, but many of them are not vaccinated against COVID-19. Last fall's vaccination rollout for 5- to 11-year-olds has stalled. Only 10% of that age group are up to date. Likewise, about a quarter of 12 to 17-year-olds have received the recommended COVID-19 vaccines. It's worth noting that, overall, kids are at low risk of getting very sick with COVID-19. But vaccinations are still essential. They prevent many infections outright, cutting the chances that kids could pass COVID-19 to their vulnerable family members. And if kids do get sick, vaccinations reduce the likelihood of severe illness or long COVID symptoms. All that means that they can stay in school and keep doing the activities they enjoy. So how can the United States jumpstart the momentum for vaccinating all kids and teens? A recent RAND study suggests that community organizations, such as those that previously focused on things like voter registration, census participation, and youth empowerment, can also be effective at breaking down the barriers to COVID vaccination. This is primarily because these organizations' strategies are hyper-local. They meet people in their homes, places of worship, food banks, barbershops, and concert venues. And the people that represent these organizations are already known and trusted members of their communities. This hyper-local approach works. But our research also found that it takes time, often requiring four, five, or even more touch points to help someone get from definitely not 
to yes on the vaccine. So when it comes to vaccinating America's kids, this type of community-based work may be effective, but it may also require going block by block or door to door to talk to families. Naloxone is a prescription drug that can reverse the effects of an opioid overdose if administered promptly. New laws have made it easier to prescribe and obtain this life-saving drug, but a new RAND study finds that the cost of naloxone is out of reach for many uninsured Americans. In 2014, the average out-of-pocket cost for a naloxone prescription was $35 for the uninsured. By 2018, it was $250. On the other hand, among those who have insurance, the cost of naloxone has actually declined by 26% from 2014 to 2018. These findings are based on our researchers' examination of more than 700,000 prescription records. Uninsured Americans represent about 20% of adults with an opioid use disorder and nearly one-third of opioid overdose deaths. Cost is almost certainly a factor that complicates naloxone access for this vulnerable population. To address this, policymakers have options. They could, for example, consider subsidizing naloxone purchases or issuing coupons to the uninsured. In the wake of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, providers and health advocates are looking for ways to provide legal abortions. Expanding virtual medical appointments is one popular idea. Telemedicine provides a safe way to prescribe medical abortion drugs to low-risk patients and can reduce back-and-forth travel required for in-person visits. Telemedicine may also help clinics and medical offices rapidly scale up and meet demand for care, especially in states experiencing an influx of patients from neighboring states that have abortion bans. But there are challenges to using telemedicine. To start, patients may be worried about privacy. Women who are seeking an abortion without the knowledge of a domestic partner may be unable to have a private virtual consultation at home, for example. Data security is another concern. With a potential criminalization of abortion in many states, people may not want to risk a virtual doctor's visit that leaves a digital footprint which could be accessed by prosecutors. Barriers to access are also a problem. Telemedicine requires a smartphone or video chatting technology and a reliable internet connection, which not everyone has. Such issues will likely have an outsized effect on women who are young, poor, or who live in rural areas. RAND experts offer three overarching recommendations to address these problems. First, explore audio-only telemedicine. Given the documented safety of medication abortion prescribed without a video conference, care by phone could be a way to rapidly scale up services with minimal technical infrastructure. Second, increase access to safe and private spaces. States, counties, or cities could identify places for individuals to conduct these visits. Public libraries, for example, might dedicate private rooms for patients. Or, healthcare clinics that do not offer abortion services could set aside rooms with iPads or computers for patients to access telemedicine abortion visits. Third, 
raise awareness about telemedicine options. If telemedicine is to be more widely adopted for abortion care, then prospective patients need to understand its availability and have their questions about it easily answered. What operational and strategic advantages can a diverse workforce create for the UK and US Armed Forces? That's the question at the center of a new report published by RAND Europe. The authors, RAND researchers based in both the UK and the US, find that embracing diversity in the military offers a wide range of benefits. Consider, for example, neurodiversity, the idea that genetic and environmental factors contribute to differences in how people think and process information, and how they experience and interact with the world around them. There is emerging evidence that neurodiversity correlates with a range of intuitive abilities that could help military personnel excel in navigating the information environment, including pattern recognition, the ability to hyper-focus for extended periods of time, data interpretation, memory, spatial perception, and ability to process large quantities of data rapidly and in minute detail. Other benefits of diversity in the ranks include expanded language capabilities among service members, the advantages associated with having a military force that reflects the makeup of wider society, and the improved ability to support the development of effective, ethical, and trustworthy artificial intelligence systems. Realizing these benefits, however, will likely require changing existing military structures. The researchers provide recommendations that focus on a few key areas, enhancing diversity through recruitment, effectively managing and rewarding a diverse workforce, and continuously strengthening the capacity to retain and promote diversity within the ranks. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. For more on today's episode, check the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you.